to Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we catch up on previously unseen movies recommended by the other. I'm Leanne. And I'm Greg. And here we go again. Today, we're talking about Never Been Kissed and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Before we get into the movies, I want to say thank you to if you've listened to a part of an episode, an entire episode, or all of our episodes that there are people listening to our show at all is incredibly cool and humbling and we really appreciate your support so thank you again also we are now on letterboxd so if you're interested in reading shorter reviews of the movies we talk about on the show separate from our long-form discussion or other things we're watching separate from the podcast we have a list tracking movies we talk about on the show with notes about what episode that movie is from and whose pick it is uh, you can find us there and everywhere else on social media at movie catch-up pod also, Greg, uh, you recently had a birthday transitioning into the big 3-0. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm <laughs> 24 or some arbitrary number that I've settled on. You really want to be 24? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Now that you felt anxious about turning 30, but now that the date has come and gone, how are you feeling? Um, For a while... It was like, oh, that's, it's just like another day. It's, it's no different. Like, you know, I'm just 30 now, but like, I don't know if it's just the whole thing setting in now, but I definitely feel like my whole worldview just like slightly tiny, like just a slight shift. And now I just feel like, wow, I'm in my thirties now, my twenties, like are already like a fleeting memory and like, I feel so much older now, and it's like, it's just starting to really set in, maybe. And it's just like, relating to so much more Twitter content for people in their 30s that are like, I don't get this, and it's like, I'm just getting old now. But at the same time, it's not really that different, and I'm settling into it fine. That's good. I mean, we place a weird cultural significance on leaving your 20s, but I have been in my 30s for three years now, and it's great. I live by the maxim that like life starts at 30 because like usually by that time you're kind of settled into a job of some kind you've got enough life experience that you're maybe not making stupid decisions who knows but it's been great i i mean i never really like had a 20s experience the way that like some people had 20s experiences but i'm still in that camp that's like i'm 30 and still waiting for shit to start happening <laughs> But that's fine. Everybody starts at different points, but it's good. Yeah. kind of. Some of it touches back to a video I was watching somewhat recently. But was it Ollie Philosophy 2 who's talking about, like, heterotemporality? Whatever, like, straight, like, time, philosophy yeah, tube topic. like straight time versus, like, queer time and how, like, time passes differently and there's different – because you can't, like – measure your life as a queer person based on the same milestones as a straight person just because of like the way society expects you to grow up and be at like these certain steps at certain ages yeah so i feel like related to that video a lot too saw something on twitter uh, i think it was just yesterday where somebody said that like, the 10 years after trans people transition is like their teen years yeah. so yeah it's definitely everybody has different markers or life events for sure. You watched anything interesting recently? All right, I know you were watching Order on Netflix, which kind of ate your life yeah, for a couple quick of days. Yeah, three-day binge of the Order on Netflix, which I'm still residually 
going through some of those emotions and feelings because it was a lot in a few days. And while it wasn't something I would necessarily call great content, it was it really started to find itself, and there was enough there that really hooks you in. That I I will be binging season three when it, if when it comes out. That's for sure. Let's hope Netflix doesn't cat cancel oh, it after yeah, season three the way honestly. it has a tendency to do. I have been rewatching the NBC series Hannibal, which is back on Netflix. And I just wanted to say with respect to our episode five discussion of Silence of the Lambs, where I incorrectly said that Hannibal sort of followed the events of the book Red Dragon. That is a lie. The show itself is essentially a fan fiction it really borrows a lot of different things from like all of the different books and creates kind of its own narrative using those characters. So I just wanted to correct myself saying I did because it had been a while since I'd watched it. And also I hadn't watched the complete series. So my memory of show was incorrect. I am currently partway through watching old guard, which just came out yesterday on Netflix and I have a feeling I will be watching that multiple times within one week. So far, it is pretty incredible. Like, it's uh, pretty... I'm about halfway through, maybe, and um, I don't want to call anything too early, but I feel like it might be my favorite Charlize Theron movie, and maybe I like it more than Atomic Blonde already? I don't know. It's really good. Controversial opinions. <laughs> yes, you will have to watch it this weekend or soon because we need to talk more about it. Maybe on a future, maybe on a future episode. We'll see. Well, let's talk let's movies then, I guess. Prince yourself. Don't you want to show them that the cool kids don't freak you out anymore? That you can go in there and you can be friends with them and you can get your story? Yes, desperately. Plus, if you quit now, then you're no better than me. Better than I. That's a spirit. Mm -hmm. So let's hear it. Come on. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. That's it. Now, scream it. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore! <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so this episode, I asked you to watch the movie Never Been Kissed. And this is the 1999 uh, release starring Drew Barrymore, David Arquette, Molly Shannon, Michael Varden, Lily Sobieski, John C. Riley, Jessica Alba, Octavia Spencer, Jeremy Jordan. And I forgot that he was in this movie, but also James Franco. Was I had one of those, is that James Franco moments? So yeah. I also had one of those. And then I was like, I completely forgot that he was in this movie, but we'll just get through the movie details first. And the director for this movie is Raja Gosnell, whose director credits include Home Alone 3, Mama's House, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2, Yours, Mine, Ours, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, Smurfs, and Smurfs 2. I don't know if I should be ashamed that I've seen a lot of those, but uh, yeah. <laughs> a very interesting selection of director credits, to be sure. And the writers for this movie are the writing team, Abby Cohn and Mark Silverman, who wrote the screenplays for He's Just Not That Into You, Valentine's Day, and How to Be Single. There are others, but those are sort of three big ones. And I have seen two out of the three of those and have liked them a lot. I know that How to Be Single is like one of our, one of our collective faves. Yeah, really, really good. 
And this movie has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 55%, which was surprisingly low to me. Uh, the reason I chose this movie was partly because I love it a lot, but it was largely motivated because um, of our discussion about uh, the truth about cats and dogs where it came up. And I just was listening to that part over and over again while I was editing the show. I was like, this definitely has to be like the next one that I get Greg to watch. So that's kind of why. So the summary for this movie is Rosie Geller is a copy editor for the Chicago Sun-Times who has aspirations of becoming a journalist. Her editor doesn't think she has what it takes to be a writer. The owner of the paper, tired of having stories scooped by the competition, assigns an undercover story to Josie, which requires her to go back to high school, providing her an opportunity to prove her writing chops. As a not-so-former geek, Josie has to overcome her own awkwardness and painful memories of high school to do so task that proves easier said than done and leaves more than a few casualties along the way. So I had given you kind of a general heads up that there's a lot of secondhand embarrassment in this movie. And I know that that's something that you struggle with, but um, now that you've seen it, what were sort of your initial impressions? Oh boy. I really don't want to just like come on the podcast every time and be like this rom-com from the nineties. I hated it. But I had a lot of problems with this one, more so than some of the other ones. Not even just the secondhand embarrassment at all, but like, oh boy, does this movie not hold up in uh, a post-Me Too kind of environment. The just, it's just so uncomfortable with all the questions of consent and age, and it's, it's a lot. There was parts I definitely liked, and we'll get into that. But overall, there was a lot of angry note-taking on this movie of, like, why are you just spilling out your guts of all your relationships problems to this high school student who's 16, and you're her teacher, and you like well, you just met this student, too. Like, this is really uncomfortable. Like, like this is just wrong. <laughs> there was just a lot of that. And it was hard for me to get past a lot of the teacher-student relationship stuff to like get to the parts of the movie that I did like. So that was a little hard for me. Fair enough. I was thinking earlier today about this and the, re- the only way that this movie works is because all of the students in this movie are played by actors uh, because they're still students. And uh, oh, follow me on this though. Follow me on this. Not because of the fact that they're all played by adults, but because Josie is 27 years old when she's being sent to do this assignment. Drew Barrymore is a fully grown woman. She looks like a woman. She does not look like she is 17 years old. And if you sent a 27 year old woman into a high school, like they would get clocked in a second as not being a student because like, I don't have a lot of experience with teenagers because I'm an adult and I don't have like a lot of kids in my life. But when I occasionally see a real 16 or 17 year old kid, like I don't look like anybody in this movie. So I think realistically, unless you had somebody who like actually looked quite young, sort of situation would never work because one, teenagers are quite intuitive. Also just from an appearance standpoint, like she looks like an adult. Like, I definitely get that. But at the same time, like, the movie is presenting itself that he is a grown-ass man. She is supposedly 16. And it's super uncomfortable. And, like, there's, I just couldn't get by that. Regardless of the fact that Barry Moore's character is older, that she looks older, that everyone in this high school looks 25. Like, the movie, that's not in the context of the movie. In the context of the movie, he is, it's just super gross. 
Oh, I'm not trying to yeah. like explain away like the weird student teacher thing at all. I just mean I just in the aspect of like. Past it. But it was just the idea of like Josie Geller, 27 years old, being sent back to high school to like go undercover. Like the only reason why it works in the context of this movie is because like everybody is played by an adult, and so they all sort of look the same. If you're thinking in a re- real life scenario, if you sent somebody who was almost 30 to go pretend to be 17, like they look. But that's neither here nor there. Send Bianca Lost and it'd be fine. (laughs) I mean, really, though. Yeah. Anyway, that aside, I just want to be clear that, like, what I'm talking about, you know, feasibility of this, I don't mean with respect to the student teacher relationships, whether or not that's appropriate or anything. Just in terms of general concept. (laughs) And so let's talk about what you did like, and then we can get into all of the things that you didn't like. Uh, my number one like, which should not be shocking, is Molly Shannon. Molly Shannon as Anita, the best friend I just loved, because uh, it's Molly Shannon. She's great. I like that she is very sexually charged female character that doesn't get like reprimanded or slut-shamed for it throughout most of this movie. She's very in control of herself, and she's just Molly Shannon just camping it up in the best way possible. So every time she was on screen i would write molly shannon's back this is great i love molly shannon so she was definitely a highlight of the movie for me the entire cast is really good the cast was definitely like all my notes that i had very positive here all relate other than james franco all relate back to i really like this cast and they had really good chemistry a lot of them together i thought that uh, david arquette as uh drew barrymore's brother rob and josie together had really good chemistry they really felt like very authentic siblings to me and not for a second did i ever disbelieve any of that because it was like really well sold to me you got their characters and their relationship and their dynamic really quickly Mm. and i just love david arquette so that helped um, definitely, uh, we'll get to it later, but just speaking on the cast, I was a little sad we didn't get more Octavia Spencer. I was curious, like, what else she'd done at this point in her career? Uh, I didn't look it up or anything, but Octavia Spencer, you think of now, like, you don't just mm. put Octavia Spencer in your movie to, to just, like, nod in the background and be sassy. Like, you use your Octavia Spencer wisely. She is amazing. But I'm assuming this was pretty early in her career, and she was just kind of a background character in this. One thing that I really liked about this movie was the use of flashback. I thought that it really did well to add to the story and tell us a lot about Josie and her experience with high school leading up to her going back for this assignment because like she was like very nerdy, like you know, the braces, not very stylish, very awkward. She had a crush on, you know, the most popular guy at school and everybody knew about it. And When I was in grade seven, I liked a guy in my class. I thought I liked a guy in my class. And I had a friend tell him during like lunch recess or something in front of like him and all of his friends. And he like acted like he didn't know who I was. And like I got teased and it just about relentless for like the whole year. And it just like would die down and then it would come up and it was absolute worst. Oh God. I got, I got bullied in elementary school way more than any other period of my life. It was so traumatizing. So the scene where she's like reading this poem to yeah. die without it. And everybody knows like not quite in the same way, but like I can definitely relate to that. Um, so mm. all of her like, you know, 
uh, sinking feelings about having to go back to high school to do the stories. Like I can kind of relate to that. I didn't even go back to my 10 year reunion. Like I, you could not pay me money to go back <laughs> to high school. And like poor Josie has to do this because. Uh, yeah. I wrote that down. Like you, this is like traumatizing. The idea of going back to high school is like, no, I, I would never like, you couldn't pay me. A couple of the framing uh, things with the flashback is like when she's coming out on the porch for the house that she grew up in at the end of the movie, when she's going to the prom for real with the most popular guy in school, where in high school um, she gets asked out by this guy that she's a crush on and they use it to play a cruel joke at her where they egg her um, from the limo as they drive by. And it's really traumatic. Sometimes flashback is not used well in movies and it can be overdone, not just in movies, like, we could talk about Arrow if you want to talk about Flashback, but that is a, <laughs> a separate podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was something that I really liked. I just, it felt like a really good balance for, I guess, about Josie and her history. I was a little mixed on the use of Flashback in this. I did like a lot of it, but I had a lot of questions regarding the tone of the movie, because it reminded me a lot, which is not surprising, of Rami and Michelle's High School Reunion obviously very similar, but with Rami and Michelle, the flashback scenes to when they're in high school versus them going to the reunion and all that is so obviously farcical because they're the same age in the flashbacks as like in their thirties and like then, uh, or maybe they were in their late twenties. I don't remember, but versus the present, like they're very, <laughs> it's very played for laughs. Like it's very obvious. And in this, I wasn't sure if during the flashbacks it was supposed to be like a big farce, like the fact that it's just Drew Barrymore playing herself in high school and looks the same as now when she's going back to high school. She's the same age playing the same character and they just like put her in pigtails or whatever and put braces on her. And it's kind of almost like I, I should be laughing at this, but it's also played very sincere. Like this is super traumatic for her. So I had a little bit of tonal, like, I don't know exactly what the movie wants me to feel like right now. Am I supposed to be like, oh, isn't this funny flashback? Or like, oh, shit, this is really traumatizing for her flashback. I think with respect to those flashbacks, how you respond to it really has a lot to do with, like, where you're coming from in terms of character. Like If you're like her or, or not like her, if you're like me or there are people who have difficult uh, feelings about high school, and you can probably watch those scenes and like you feel obvious sympathy for Josie because you can kind of relate to her. But if you were like a cool kid in high school, you might feel more inclined to I mean, laugh. Yeah. I think it just I had sort of depends on where you are on the I had an scale. extremely tragic high school experience, terrible high school experience. And I consider myself a very empathic person. And I could easily relate to Josie in those scenes, but at the same time, like part of my brain was like the way they're filming this scene with them egging her. She's in her eighties prom dress and her braces and all that. Like the way everything is shot is telling you something different that the context of the scene, if that makes sense. Like it's like the, the framing device is almost identical to the framing device in Rami and Michelle. That is very clearly telling you, even though tragic things are happening to your characters in this high school flashback, the shot is filmed in a way that like, it's clearly not supposed to be serious. And I almost thought like it would have helped to just very much like get a younger actress playing her from 10 years ago, roughly when she was in high school 
or something like that. I don't know. Like just, I had a bit of problems with that just because it, it felt like I was supposed to be laughing at her and I didn't want to, because like you're saying, it's so tragic. Hmm. I just felt like the movie wanted me to laugh at her, which felt weird because she is clearly like a very comedic character throughout the whole thing. Like you feel, you feel for her a lot. And I thought that Drew Barrymore really held like the movie together. Like she's super good in this. Like she conveys a ton of emotion with just a smile. Like her face is, she does such a good job in this movie of presenting such a wide array of feelings of her going through this whole experience in high school. And she's such a unique character, like just how we're introduced to her and her like little quirks at her uh, job and all that throughout the whole movie. I thought that was really good, but at the same time, like she's clearly the way she dresses, the way she acts, she's not doing a great job at blending in in high school. Like it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. I mean, I think it is supposed to be comedic because she is this unfashionable sort of character that lacks real self-awareness. Like that, that everybody knows that this poem she's reading to this guy, Bobby is about him. Yeah. She seems very, uh, unaware that this is a thing that is known. So I, yeah, I think you mentioned it. I, I can see how it would be difficult to read that because I, now that I'm thinking about it, it really does read like we are supposed to laugh at her. I think because I sort of have a similar experience that makes me much more sympathetic to Josie. I don't necessarily see it like that, but hearing you explain it, I definitely see what you mean. I definitely have a note that says that Drew is so good as Josie and that makes her a really sympathetic character and for all of the reasons oh, for sure. said. I mean even just like her house that we get introduced to at the beginning where there's like her little turtles for pets and all her like embroidery pillows it's clearly setting her up as like the weird neurotic spinster in 1999 I wrote down like I probably would have laughed at her for this but in 2020 it hits very different and I'm just like super impressed at how talented she is at embroidery and fucking love her turtles and like she's great like that's just great that's the kind of person i want to be friends with uh which is probably not what i would have thought when this movie came out watching it it's an amazing thing called growth yeah experience you learn to empathize with people in a different way a similar note to that like i loved her friend that she her first friend she makes there from like the math club yes was super cool she was so great and it uh it really, yeah, it got, it stung and it got to me when she like dumps her new friends for a chance to get into the popular girls to like get the scoop and the story and all that. And it was sad. Drawing on that, I thought that this movie presents a pretty accurate representation of like how mercurial high school relationships can be. Cause like Josie has exactly one instance where she doesn't show up to hang out with these people and they drop her like a hot potato. And yeah. like, I, I remember when I was in high school, um, there was a girl who was like my best friend and I had a period where I was like really into hockey. And <laughs> so I would like just kind of go home after school so that I could like watch games and stuff like that. And she basically like decided that, you know, she didn't want to be friends with me anymore. And I really bent over backwards to like save that relationship. We're not friends anymore. And I haven't talked to her <laughs> in a few years, but it was just, yeah, it's, it's just so funny how in high school, you know, like the slightest thing can ruin a friendship when it could very easily be saved with you know a simple apology. Yeah, it definitely, it got the tone of high school, uh, at least what I remember of high school. There was, uh, 
it felt authentic in many ways. I also really liked the little click of like Kirsten, Kristen, and then you've got Gibby. I really like in high school movies, I don't know why, when you've got like a little click of girls where like all of their names are like kind of the same, like Recess with like the Ashleys. And then of course there's like the yeah. movie Heathers, right? Yeah. Just, it's very emblematic of like these snooty popular girls who have like a very specific aesthetic about them. They were just generally very funny. You know, these completely airheaded girls who serve very little purpose. <laughs> as soon as I realized that uh, one of the Kirstens was uh, Jessica Elba, which took me a while. I was like, oh, Jessica Elba, I don't super love you and things, but. I still somewhat find you very endearing. I also loved the names of the teachers. We only get to see a couple of teachers in this movie, but there's Mr. Coulson and then there's Ms. Knotts. So we get these fun little um, character indicators based on name. And like Ms. Knotts is like, I guess she's a language teacher or something. I'm not sure what exactly she teaches. I think so. But when Josie comes in, she's late and Ms. Knotts like makes her wear this sombrero as a shaming yeah. thing. When I was in university, um, in one of my sociology classes, I had a professor where if your phone rang in class, she would answer it. Oh, and, God. And it happened a couple of times. And it was very awkward. But the idea was to, like, teach you to respect the classroom environment and make sure that your phone is on silent or whatever. But it definitely reminded me of that. Uh, what were some other things that you liked from this movie? Um, I mean, it's a movie set in the 90s, so I like the fashion, obviously. I feel like this movie did a lot of really fun 90s fashion things I love. Her first outfit she shows up in at school with, like, the ostrich feather pure white outfit that everyone's, like, just laughing at. And I'm just like, mm, no, this is kind of great. <laughs> I kind of like this. Yeah, just outfits in general. I liked all the, like, the bitchy girls, the Kirstens and all that, like, Anytime people are wearing like funky dangly earrings or weird things in their hair or like shiny metallic materials or like all that kind of great 90s stuff. It's great. Love that. I loved at the end of the movie during the prom scene when Kirsten, Kristen and Gibby, they all show up and they're all dressed as like different variations of Barbie. They basically look the same. I was a little, I mean, this would go in the nitpicks, but... I, th- I was like, oh, the the theme is famous couples. This is, okay, this could be kind of cute. And then everyone showed up as not famous couples, really. Or, like, it was very unclear in the theme. Like, of various versions of Barbie and Ken, famous couples. Like, I thought people were going to be, like, like, actual people. But almost everyone was a character. And then there was just a group dressed up as the village people. And I was like, what? This is confusing. <laughs> I mean, interpret the theme however you want, I guess. I guess. I have a lot of nitpicks about that. Yeah, the whole science nerds, Aldous and company, they come in on their double <laughs> helix, so, you know. It was weird. Like, famous couples throughout history, I think is what Josie said. And it's like, okay, this is whatever, sure. I mean, her, the primary theme was, like, made for each other. And then, like, the post-colon part is, like, famous couples throughout history. So I don't think sure. it's, like incorrect to interpret that as being i just didn't see a lot of famous couples from history that's all enough people were like sandy and whatever from greece whatever the guy's name is in greece Andy and danny danny sure it's all about sandy who cares (laughs) i was at least happy that josie and guy went to prom not as romeo and juliet like you're gonna go as oh going as orlando Rosalind. rosalind 
Um, yeah. I don't know a lot about the plant that they're from, but uh, I feel like I every love, couple from Shakespeare is like... I so feel good. like it is so good. <laughs> I did really like that trope. Um, the trope of, we're studying X thing that somehow relates to the plot of the movie. Like, I'm a sucker for that trope. As long as it's not the Scarlet Letter, which I feel like I've seen in a lot of things, mainly Easy A, but like that seems to get used a lot. But I like when they're like studying a thing and it's like super obvious, like hammer you on the head with a theme from that book. It's the theme of the movie too. And, and as you like, it's good because it's like it's all about going undercover, basically, like in drag to like, it's like once you're pretending to be someone other than you and like you can like get what you actually want. And I don't know, it's, it was cool. I like that stuff. I wish I had been more familiar with play to sort of pick up on that as an underlying theme of this movie, because I did not until you just said that now. I saw it on Bard and the Beach, and it was so good. And it's one of like the big uh, Shakespeare plays where it's like a lot about doing uh, being in drag, and all the ones where there's characters in drag throughout the play are all great. So I would definitely recommend finding a good version of it. I feel like I've seen a really good filmed version. Um, I feel like you would like the podcast Avant Bard. They discuss adaptations of Shakespeare's work, whether that be stage productions or movies or otherwise in all of their many forms. They're very good and a lot of fun. And I'm excited to see the other things that they're going to um, cover. And just now that you've mentioned parallel between As You Like It and um, this movie, I wonder if that's going to come up at all. One of the other things that I liked about this was his sort of wish fulfillment in a way where, you know, Josie gets to go back to high school and she gets to like have friends who like actually like her and who are very supportive of her. And she's on the mathletes team and like that's a whole thing. And, you know, just kind of getting to go back and like experience something in a positive way. But you know, like I said at the outset, you could not pay me money to go back to high school for any reason. But at least in this context, you know, given how shitty Josie's high school experience was, you know, for her to go back and have this very positive experience, however false, it's nice to watch until, you know, mm-hmm. it starts to shift and fall apart a bit. Is there anything under your good section that you wanted to talk about? I think I touched on most of it. Okay, well, let's move on to the bad then, since that seems to be... Well, I guess I'll start with some of my more nitpicky things. One thing that bugged me uh, an obscenely large amount for how stupid it is, and I wrote down in all caps, is that um, when Josie is asked to read a scene from Twelfth Night, she's asked to read Act 5, Scene 2, and she opens like the third page in her book and begins reading. I'm just screaming at my TV, like, that's not Act 5, Scene 2. You're supposed to be reading from something near the very end of the play, and you're holding the actual copy of As You Like It In Your Hands. Just flip to the actual scene, Drew Barrymore, and read it. Like, this is breaking my immersion. This scene is not on page three. It was like the very beginning of the book she opened. I'm just like, what? He literally said, read Act 5, Scene 2. That's not on that page. And I know that for sure. It really threw me. We were in uh, Shakespeare together. You know, like, you probably would already have the book open to that part yeah. of the play anyway. So it should just be open in front of you. It's like, did, did Drew Barrymore just actually memorize the, probably. that scene? I guess, because, like, she's not reading out of the book. But she's, like, took it, wrote it down, put it on a post-it, and then put that post-it on the wrong page of the book and then read from it. Like... 
It's very confused. I think it's yeah kind of thing uh, where people just kind of open a book to wherever, even though you know that's not where it is. Yeah. Is like on par with the fact that a lot of actors have cups that don't have anything in them. And I know that bothers a lot of people yeah. because like the way that you interact with the cup that has even just water in it in terms of weight is very different than just holding an empty mug. So opening a book to the right page or a realistic page uh, is a very simple thing to do. Just like putting water in a cup, even a little bit, just to make sure that a, an actor is interacting with that object in a particular way. It's an easy way to like still realism in your uh, text. So you're only just the, um, <laughs> the page nation of play. I had a bunch of other nitpicks. I had down here, like when they find out that, which is a complete shocker to me that in the 1999 to 2000 year, multiple schools were doing a millennium themed prom. The nerve, <laughs> the shock, multiple schools doing a millennium themed prom for 1999, 2000. Uh, <laughs> that was funny. But then they all turned to Josie, like, Oh my God, we can't do that prom anymore. What are we going to do? Everyone's like, Josie will have the answer. And they all turn to her, which is a class of like 30 people in English. Uh, and they're just going to, cons- there's just the 30 of them in the whole high school are going to consult a random girl who's not on the prom committee in the middle of English class. And she's just going to definitively give them the answer. What the- our new prom is. Josie will just pick it for us. Like we don't have an actual prom committee and like 30 people in an English class during third period on one day are just going to collectively, well not collectively decide the prom theme. Like it was super weird because prom had been hammered in as such an important thing. Like prom, 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 prom. And then Josie's just going to single-handedly pick the theme. It's because Guy is the most weird. popular guy in school, is the one that suggests that There's more than 30 people in the school. What do they think about it? What is the prom committee? Prom committee is a huge thing. They even referenced it. I don't know what to tell you. I'd feel pissed if I was on the prom committee. I'd be like, wait, that girl I've never met just decided our theme for us? Who consulted us? How about we had the Millennium theme first and we make East High or whatever pick a different theme. There's like a deleted scene where the prom committee like corners Josie after class and like (laughs) she has to convince them that it's a good idea. Uh, Another minor (laughs) thing. I just thought it was so funny. Um, I had down here like, why is everyone struggling so much to put a condom on a banana? This doesn't actually seem difficult. I know it's like a thing that's in a lot of movies. And I also question, like, if that's actually a thing people do, because I never got to have sex ed because I went to a Christian high school where our sex ed was um, one period, one day during grade eight, where we were brought into a portable outside, all split between boys and girls. And they just, like, showed us a few pictures of, like, this is what a penis looks like when it gets erect. Don't have sex. You'll die. Uh, Jesus is watching. And like, that was our sex ed. So you had mean uh, girls sex education then. Yes. Except if it was split by gender <laughs> <laughs> and less informative somehow. Uh, yeah. We were, we were just shown the male anatomy and like, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to get urges. Uh, if you get urges towards boys, just pray. It'll be fine. Uh, and also have sex. and You'll die. Like that was uh, it. I never got to put anything on a banana. So I'm not sure if that actually happens. I didn't have sex ed in high school. Um, I remember I was in grades, I want to say grade six. And it was, again, split by boys and girls. And we girls got, you know, um, I think they like passed around a pad and like maybe tampon, I forget. And we got to watch an episode of the iconic Canadian television show, Ready or Not, 
where Busy gets her period. And I think that was all. I don't remember wow. anything else about it. Very informative. Wow, that's shocking. That's like the same I had, practically. That was in public school? Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't remember anything beyond that. I specifically remember a Ready or Not episode because I learned that cold water is useful for getting blood out of things. That's my takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> in the video they showed us, I just remember, like, them trying to explain that like penises come in different shapes and sizes. So they just had like a bunch of penises that were like um, noses with glasses on them to like show that the noses come in different shapes. So penises, I guess it was real weird. <laughs> just a lot about penises, <laughs> but they were also like, don't be attracted to these. <laughs> it's like, this is mixed messaging. You're sending me. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know. There's a lot of things that happens in movies where I'm like, does this happen in real life? Like, parties where everybody like high school parties in general like I didn't go to parties at all because I wasn't a popular kid but like I don't know I I have a hard time identifying with these movies sometimes because my teenage experience was very like not that I have a hard time kind of believing that like a lot of other people's teenage experience was that because it seems so bananas to me um one nitpick I have is the club that they go to at like all of these high school kids go to. That's something that bothers me a lot in a lot of things. Like looking at you, Gossip Girl, where these like very clearly underage kids get to go into these bars and like drink alcohol and whatever. And the bouncers and like the bartenders like don't seem to give a shit. Like you could lose your license and like your entire business could be shut down because you're serving minors, but like, sure, yeah. whatever. Like Rosie comes in and she's like, yes, I am under 21. And they're like, sure, come on in. But also here's a stamp that says loser and that will stick to your face. And like, you know, that's something that always bothers me a lot. Uh, let's work through your bad list. Okay. Um, let's just get out of the way. The, the ROM in the rom-com which was just weird. So the whole movie is like, uh, oh God, I don't even know where to start. Her teacher has the hots for her and she's 16 and the teacher is clearly a grown ass man. And it's just, it's super uncomfortable how the movie, like the movie knows that we know that Josie is 25 or seven or whatever. So yeah. So the movie is like, just goes there. Like he is fully her teacher. And within like a day of her showing up in school is like, complaining about his uh, relationship issues and like just hopping on the Ferris wheel with her. Cause no one else is. And I'm just going to like corner and trap my student on this Ferris wheel and just like spew all this relationship problems I'm having at her. It's so weird. So weird. It's so weird. Just the whole subplot. And though Mr. Paulson so like very clearly has like shameful feelings about the fact that he has any kind of attraction to Josie specifically for the reason that she's underage and also his student. Um, it's very- he mentions it many times like, Oh, I know this is wrong. Continues to do said thing. Yeah. Like, cool. At least the movie told us he knows it's wrong, even though he's just going to keep doing it. Like he shouldn't have been worried at the end of the movie when Josie is outed as being a reporter going to do a story on him uh, and how he's like a pedo. Like, if he had nothing to hide and didn't do anything wrong with Josie, he shouldn't have been worried. Like, it, like he clearly was doing something wrong this whole movie. And then the fact that it's spun with a third act reveal and, and then the big kiss scene and all this to be, like, romantic in the end is like, I don't know, man. You thought she was 16. Like, 
It's weird. And then it's running congruent to the subplot with her brother, who's also pretending to be in high school now. And a 16-year-old girl and him are, like, getting involved. And that's super gross, obviously. And then there's also Guy, who ends up liking Josie. And they go to the prom together, and she's a grown-ass woman, and he's a child. And the whole time, I'm just like, so we're having three subplots with weird consent issues in this movie that's taking up, like, the bulk of this movie. And I'm just like, how did anyone think this was okay? Was this okay in 1999? Like, we're supposed to, like, root for Josie and the teacher? Like, really? I don't know. Yeah, that's a fair point. I know that, like, Rob and um girl i don't know what her name is um her relationship definitely rubbed me the wrong way well and i think if josie was a girl sorry josie was a guy and like the teacher was a girl like i don't know if that would hit differently too like and the same with like rob like i don't know yeah well it's interesting that you say that because actually i was just reading an article on friday which was yesterday and uh, I don't know if you remember this very high profile thing, um, Mary Kay Letourneau, who was like this 30 year old teacher who had like a sexual 12 year old student. Yeah, I remember this. Anyway, she's dead now, but um, that happened in 1996. I think. And yeah, that was definitely framed as, um, you know, like, oh, they were having a tryst and he pursued her and like, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, definitely yeah. if the roles were reversed. Because, and we're not supposed to like think Josie's doing something. The, the movie doesn't want us to think Josie's doing something wrong by like going to prom with Guy and like being flirty with him. And like, she seems genuinely excited about the idea that Guy is into her because she never got to have Billy. Yeah, when to she parallel was, her high school experience where she gets to go to prom with the most popular. She's not high school. No, but it's part of the farce, right? Like regardless of. It doesn't seem to be played for farce in a lot of ways. Well, and I mean, it goes back to my earlier comment about it being wish fulfillment about, you know, her getting to have all of this stuff from high school that she didn't get to have. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's inappropriate. And, you know, watching it 20 or not 20 years later, years later, Oh, 20 years later. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, 20, 20 years, years later. later. Like, definitely coming at it from where we are now, it's, you know, it really does read differently. But I just feel like if they wanted this whole subplot with Josie and Guy, she needed to have a big, like, what I'm doing is wrong, this is wrong moment. Like, she has the wish fulfillment aspect and then realizes, oh, this is just wish fulfillment, what I'm doing is really wrong. But, like, that doesn't really ever get wrapped up and like the whole time i wrote down many notes about this i'm like oh my god there's clearly this other reporter who's undercover here because the story keeps getting scooped on her whatever like oh the the story about all the kids hanging out at the weird garbage fireplace at the abandoned place or whatever that hangout for all the teenagers was oh, that gets scooped in, the, in a rival newspaper. So the whole time I'm thinking, okay, Guy is acting real freaking weird. He's super weird. He's clearly an undercover uh, rival agent. Um, and so the whole thing about Josie and him going to prom isn't going to be as weird because, oh, he's actually also 27 or whatever. I always think that undercover. it was just like there but was another just... journalist who was just going to these places and was able to engage with these students to get the story and that they weren't necessarily like being undercover Did about we... it. But I mean, you could certainly read Guy was acting as badly as she was at, and I just like he just didn't seem like a normal teenager. I guess none of them really did, but he especially seemed to like be overacting a lot, like she was. And I thought it wanted me to, to like 
yeah, he's the rival, and there's going to be a whole subplot, like someone keeps scooping Josie from within the school, and never went there. He was just What been an amazing twist at the end, where, like, Josie reveals that she's 27, and she's doing this undercover report, and then somebody else also is like, I'm also an undercover <laughs> reporter. That, mm. Then, of course, you know, that would blow their own cover. But you make a good point, because after she does this, then there's an article that immediately goes out about how you know, she blew her own cover, blah, blah, blah. That's just as easily... Uh, uh, situation where like we're just imagine that in today's day and age somebody like immediately is like videotaping it and it's like out on twitter and like you know now there's a news article about it so yeah connected journalist i guess you get the the hot tips uh speaking of the journalism angle i also had a lot of problems with her work related stuff um a lot of it just relating back to, and I feel like this trope happens all the time in these movies, where it opens with this framing device of her working for the newspaper, and like she just really wants her big break to not just do copy editing or whatever her job is, and now she wants to be a journalist, like a real journalist, like going undercover, doing like hard-hitting stories, like doing journalism. And it's built up quite a lot in the beginning. Like, there, that's her goal, her motivation. As we go and follow her through the first half of this movie, like, this is what we know to be Josie's motivating factor. Is she, uh, this is her one shot to become a journalist. And she blows this. She is done. Like, her boss just fires people randomly for nothing. And so she's just not going to lose her chance. She's going to lose her job. And then we go into her in high school, and I thought I'd missed it. Like, I wrote down here, like, wait, why is she going undercover here? What's the story at this high school she's trying to get? And there wasn't a story. They just sent her to high school undercover for no reason, assuming she'd find one. And I was like, this, this is weird that she's... Like, what kind of hard-hitting journalism are you going to uncover at the local high school? And she's just going fishing for a story here for no reason. She's just going to spend her entire year pretending to be a high school student. Assumingly, she's going home and doing homework. Like, the school doesn't seem to know she's undercover even. Like, she's not. She's doing work. She's she's going to high school all for no real reason. She's just looking for a story and then doesn't ever, I think it's, I wrote it, wrote down here. It was over an hour into the movie before she even pitched her second article in the whole movie. And it has been 30 minutes since we'd even be referenced the fact that she was here trying to find a story. She just completely drops that. And then it gets brought back in later. Like, Oh yeah. Why was he here again? Oh yeah. I was looking for a story. I wasn't just trying to make friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that part of it is that it's supposed to show that Josie doesn't have the instincts for journalism to sort to like find a story uh, when it's there, which is what results in her editor paid by John C. Riley, whose name is us. So he ends up like videotaping per day so that he can identify what the story is for her. And also um, with respect to the journalism piece, you know, when he tells her that he doesn't think she has what it takes to be a journalist in terms of like doing, finding the story and everything, even though she had come up with some tips that had turned into stories by other journalists, there's a difference between being able to write and being able to like write for a journalistic publication, which is something that I have experienced myself um, trying to write for other things. It's like writing for journalism is very different than creative writing or something like it's a different format. And it's not something that everybody can just do something that you can definitely learn. But they definitely threw her in the deep end. And I mean, it's kind of like a ridiculous plot. So I don't know yeah. what to tell you. I just, I don't like that when they set up, like, this character's motivation is so strongly tied to thing A, and then thing A is just completely dropped for her to have a crush on someone, or whatever else it is. It's like, 
you know, how I went on on Kate and Leopold about how she just like is so focused on her career and then just like, I'm going to go back to the 1800s and have no rights so that I can be with this guy instead of having this amazing career opportunity that I worked my ass off for and deserve. Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm not so much into the romance stuff. I mean, the, the Kate Leopold thing is a legitimate complaint, though, because the whole movie is about her trying to get this VP job, and then yeah. she gets the VP job, and at like, oh. and it's at like the literal last I do like second movie, of the movie that this happens, and then she just says, "Yeah, no, I'm going to go after some guy," and it's just like, of course, we talked about in that episode as well about the fact that basically until Kate and Leopold actually meet each other, which is you know, a good ways into the movie um, <laughs> go back and listen to the episode so I don't have to get into it so much, that basically it feels like two different movies because they're running, the stories are running parallel to each other before they actually intersect and it becomes like oh my God, movie we're supposed to be watching. Here. I was um, definitely sad that all my favorite characters got sidelined a lot. That was one of my other big issues was that they really didn't use their Molly Shannon enough. Molly Shannon was great. I thought it would have been great if we give her a tiny little subplot about how she's doing an undercover job as a teacher. Like we had her one little scene where she was like accidentally walks in and they think she's going to be the sex ed teacher for the day or whatnot. And so she just like starts teaching some sex ed. It's absolutely hilarious probably my favorite scene it would have been funny if that was like a running gag and she like uh actually got a job there to keep tabs on josie and like we see her a little bit more like that could have been cute could have been interesting i felt so awkward when she's like crouched down to talk to josie because she's like oh i was here for lunch and i thought that we could go and then when she stands up she says this like horrifyingly embarrassing comment about like burning or whatever and everybody is all grossed <laughs> out and everything it's just like you didn't have to go that direction with it though. yeah but i mean i think part of it is because like so much of josie's uh, high school history is traumatic that for her friend from work sort of pile on that regard more salt in the wound i mean like one of the things that we find out before she goes to do this is she's having an exchange with rob at home about anxieties about doing this and you know he gets her to say it's a very cathartic scene you know where she shouts you know i'm not josie grossy anymore but we find out that like he he her own brother like coined this nickname for her which you know, cause so much trauma. And I mean, I know that's not probably not an unusual thing for siblings. He was largely part of the reason that she got bullied so relentlessly in high school. And then weirdly, he ends up being the reason that she's able to succeed this undercover thing by also enrolling himself in school and spreading all of these stories that make her sound cool. Another thing I've got written down here a few different times is I think a lot of it just relates back to the pacing of this movie. We were really far into the movie before a lot of the things started to like actually click. Like I wrote down, we're an hour into this movie and so far I don't know why she's undercover. Does she even have a story? She's just kind of meandering about scene to scene, becoming friends. There was no actual romantic interest at this point and there was no real conflict plot or goal. It was just, kind of she's in high school now and it wasn't until kind of past the hour mark that we started to like kick into actually some plot happening her office co-workers also just like would be gone for the longest time and then they're back and i wasn't really sure what they were trying to do with like her work life versus her new high school life like like the balance of between those 
I didn't really know, like, are we just completely dropping it? Oh, no, now it's back. And I just really didn't know what Josie wanted. And we were pretty far in the movie when I was writing all this down. And, like, shortly after that, we started getting into things more, like, when the ultimatum is given by the boss, like, get the story now, or you're both fired to Gus and her. And then we start to kick into high gear. She's like, okay, now you need to become friends with the popular girls, because they're where the stories are at. And so it was a long time in this movie before Josie actually, like, her brother enrolls, and she starts to get more popular and hanging out with the popular popular girls and then at that point we just completely drop the her like nerdy friends and they only show up at the very end again and it, it was just I, I was missing a little bit of i think just the plot to flow a little bit better so there wasn't these big stretches where i was just kind of like i don't really know what's going on i guess this is back on my nitpicks but one thing i had written down here is like she gets like one question right in english class and all of a sudden he's like um are you actually 17 it's like not even that hard of a question Okay. It wasn't even like the fact that she got the question right. It was the detail with what she was able to answer the question. Information she should know in the class because he was asking it. It was like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I certainly wasn't familiar with the term pastoral when I was in high school. (laughs) I feel like that was one of the things we definitely went over when we were studying Shakespeare and like, I don't know. What did I read when I was in high school? We definitely read A Midsummer Night's Dream. No, that was normal. And. I think we also read Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it only comes up if you're reading a, a play that like employs pastoral it's a lot imagery, of but at least. it's neither here nor there. It's just funny to me that like the idea that if a student knows anything about the subject you're teaching, all of a sudden it's like you can't be a student here. You know things that you're supposed to be learning. <laughs> also seems like in a lot of these movies when that happens it's because like whenever they ask a question in class nobody answers so to have one student who engages with anything at all is like suspicious uh my last big thing i've got written down is about the ending she pens this terrible newspaper article that i i don't know who's gonna read like a full length article in the newspaper about some reporters would be love life and like i don't know it was it it was weird that it was just like this big article just like here's me i'm josie i don't know it was just kind of weird i don't remember exactly some of the about it why i thought it was so weird (laughs) bunch down here but that aside i guess a lot of it was just like i didn't know if this is the reporting or journalism i thought she actually wanted to do like this seems very different than what she wanted to do but basically she does a what reminded me of the love simon the like Put an ultimatum on that love. Like, you meet me in this public place and you come kiss me uh, and I'm giving you this ultimatum. And uh, just like in Love, Simon, where it hit differently in Love, Simon because at the end of that movie, it's like, come out yourself to everyone for me. And in this movie, it's like, I almost outed you as a pedophile. Now, come kiss me on this big sports field. It's like, okay. I'm thinking about the ending for this only coming from it from this side of things like as opposed to when I had originally seen this movie is this whole article reminds me a lot of those yeah. like missed connections kinds of things that people put in like classifieds and newspapers and I think they used to have like a section like that on Craigslist or whatever but um, so much of it is like you have to assume or hope that the other person like interpreted your interaction in the same way and like reads the it's newspaper that like- you're posting this in and like there's some newspaper article all about her love life (laughs) yeah but there's more than one newspaper in chicago so like what if they don't read the chicago sun times what if they read the news for that like the other paper that is their rival you know you know despite the fact that it's a big paper people tend to have their preferences so there's a very good chance that he never would have seen it And what if he had just mindlessly grabbed the page out of the paper while he was wrapping up all his valuables and didn't even see it? 
in the first place, yeah. which also seemed very likely um, based on the scene we get where he's wrapping up his sports trophies or whatever, where he could have wrapped, grabbed that paper, wrapped it around and like just never noticed anything. And you know, life goes on. Just, are we supposed to be glad that they kiss at the end and get together? Like for 95% of this movie, he's her teacher. And then for 5% of the movie, he knows... And they never speak after that. Like, and then, I don't know. It was weird. It's like the way it was filmed at the end, I actually thought the filming of that last shot and scene was really good. I kind of like that they opened on her in the sports field and then ended her in the sports field. I thought just like, it gave me such nice, like John Hughes, like triumphant, like 80s, 90s rom-com ending. Like it was very kind of tropey, but also so classic and kind of timeless and there was like all that great stuff about it all the characters cheering them on big sweeping cinematic 360 shot of them and all that but i just like couldn't be happy for them i guess like it was weird (laughs) you've barely talked to each other or engaged when one of you wasn't probably a minor and the other was the teacher like what kind of connection have you established that could warrant you just like making out in a field in front of each other when i don't know it's weird could get past it sorry i mean i'm not gonna fault you for your feelings about the movie coming from a different place than I am and I have long-standing feelings about this movie I I can see why like I like definitely putting all that aside and everything there are lots of elements of this movie I really enjoy and like I Drew Barrymore is great the filming of it is great like the movie itself there's so much in it that I can see why especially if I had watched this in 1999 why I would like it so I definitely get all that just a hard sell for me. And what would you give this on our ketchup rating? Um, perfect as is, could use some ketchup or douse it. Oh, I have an idea of where you're probably going to have to give it my first douse it just because I feel like this movie needs so much work to make it work. <laughs> like I like a lot about it, but at the same time, like it's not like some of these other movies where it could be like, Oh, I really like it. But this one plot element really kind of hindered me. But if they like tweaked it a little bit like this, I could see really liking it. Like it just needed like that little bit of catch up to fix my couple little problems with it. And then like, yeah, it'd be great with this. Like you'd have to put a lot of catch up on it to like fix the three different elements of uh, Josie and her t-shirt. Josie and Guy and Rob and the girl Rob's into and like how so much of the movie focuses on that like it's just not okay (laughs) I'd have to douse it I'm not sure I want to say that it should be doused but I would definitely say that it's in the use ketchup range so that's where I put it I'm happy to know that Abby Cohn and Mark Silverman as a writing team have gone on to do better things from this And I think you know when. So I made up my mind. It must come to an end. Look at me now. Will I ever learn? I don't know how. But I suddenly lose control. There's a fire within my soul. Show again, my mind.
So my pick for you this week was Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. This is a 2018 movie directed by Ole Parker, who also directed Imagine Me and You, and now is good. Imagine Me and You being one of my favorite movies of all time, cinematic masterpiece, Love it, love it, love it, love it. And before today, I did not know there was a connection there, and that's pretty great. Uh, This movie stars many returning players from Mamma Mia, such as Amanda Seyfried, Dominic Cooper, Julie Walters, Christine Baranski, love her, uh, Pierce Brosnan, Colin Firth, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, along with several newcomers, notably Lily James and the wondrous, fabulous, iconic Cher. Uh, This movie had a 79% Rotten Tomatoes score, which I was a little shocked by. I guess there's a lot of wine moms writing reviews. And a 66% audience score, which I was even more shocked by. thought that would be a lot higher, just because of the people watching this. So Mamma Mia 2 picks up after Mamma Mia 1, obviously, where Sophie is planning the grand reopening of the Belladonna Hotel after the passing of her mother, Donna, and struggling with both her relationship with Skye and her general place in the world. She's a little lost. Parallel to this plot, we have the retelling of Donna's big summer abroad that led to the events of the first movie, where she left home and had her flings with Harry, Bill, and Sam over the summer, and how she came to live on Calicari and have Sophie in the end. It all ends as the grand reopening of the hotel in the present, with the return of Sophie's grandmother, uh, played by Cher, and the birth of her baby daughter as we... Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie, pause this and go watch it. Um, We're treated to a surprise reappearance of Meryl Streep as Donna. I cried in the movie theater, cried this time too. Uh, It's a pretty simple plot. There's not a lot there, but it's very heartfelt. And with songs strewn throughout, all, of course, by ABBA. So I picked this movie for you, knowing it's maybe more of my movie than yours, but I felt... When I realized that you hadn't seen this yet, it just had to be remedied. Uh, I watched Mamma Mia every day for weeks and weeks and weeks when I first got it on DVD back in 2008-ish. I was and am obsessed. When this movie came out, I was going to drag you to the movie theater to see it. I remember this specifically, but I refused to do anything other than go see it the day it came out and you were not available. Uh, and I dragged another of my friends to go see this movie with me who did not super enjoy it. But I sat there with all the wine moms and we rocked out to this movie and it was wonderful. Um, and then I was going to go take you again, but uh, I think our schedules did not line up. So now you've seen it. So what did you think of this movie in general to start with? I liked it a lot. I had a lot of fun. Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I knew going into it that Anna had died and that it was somehow related to that. I didn't really know anything beyond it. And I kind of had like mixed feelings about that as being the premise. But I really liked it a lot. Honestly, I don't really have a lot of, I don't think I have anything bad to say about this movie at all. Um, A a couple of like small nitpicks with respect to song choice. But yeah, for the most part, I I really liked it. I thought it was a good sequel. I actually think it was more solid of a movie than the first one in terms of plot and pacing and like all of that. But yeah, I liked it a lot and I had a lot of fun watching it. I watched it twice for the purpose of watching the podcast and I enjoyed it both times. Yeah, I also watched it twice for this. Um, (laughs) I could have easily watched it three or four times in the same amount of time because I love it. 
Uh, so what were some of your uh, highlights that you've written down for this one? So now that we're eight episodes into the podcast, um, one thing that I am finding that I'm developing a greater appreciation for is editing. I think I always have, but like I become much more sort of aware of editing in terms of like how it makes a movie feel. And I thought the editing in this movie, particularly because it's a movie where you have two stories writing parallel past and present, uh, I thought that the the movie flowed really well. The introduction with Sophie dealing with like the grand reopening and Sky is in New York and there's immediate conflict because he's been offered this job and he kind of wants to take it. Like there's a question of like what's happening with the relationship. And um, there's obviously been some long running tension between the two of them because of the distance. So was good and i really liked the song that they did together and the way that that was edited you know you've got him putting on like his dress shirt she's like pulling the shirt out of the closet to like smell and it like immediately blends into him putting on it was just like very well constructed and a lot of the the scene transitions from like past to present or present to past terms of like the songs which is sort of the, the setup and the introduction for them worked really well for me throughout the whole thing and i liked those a lot i loved 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 Ugh. lily james as young donna oh my god she's so good she was incredible uh, she just had so much charisma and she's gorgeous and she just like really gave a lot of life to uh young donna and um i really really loved her performance i remember watching this in the theaters and like my mouth was just a gate like i was stunned at how magnetic she was and like like i don't think i'd seen her in much um just the fact that she was playing this character that meryl streep played and i saw like direct lines to Meryl Streep through this. Like, I believed that this was the younger version of the character we saw in the previous movie. And she was just had so much life to her and energy. And she just came alive during every musical number. And like, she just sold every second of it. It's probably one of my favorite female, like acting performances I've seen in like anything, honestly. And I just remember being so spellbound. I could not stop like just staring at her and like, she was so magnetic. One thing that I also loved is that they just like leaned all the way in on the three dads arrangement. Uh, I loved so much that they just like didn't bother, you know, figuring out who Sophie's real dad was and that she just had three dads and they all loved her and they were all so proud of her. Yeah. And, like everything is so good. I loved it a lot. Although I was thinking while I was watching it this time that given the fact that Donna is blonde and Sophie is blonde, if we just drew a Punnett square, probably Bill is her dad, but it's not important. I feel like the movie basically, the first movie basically is like, yeah, it's basically Bill, but you know, cause like all the, everything from like Sophie's great aunt is left to her. Who's like related to Bill or whatever. I don't know. There was the whole thing. But yeah, oh, I, I agree. The first one in a while. It is heavily insinuated, but never confirmed. It didn't bother me at all, but I was just like, it would be pretty easy to like determine that it probably would be Bill. also maybe my favorite one of three. I don't know. It goes back and forth. Everyone but Sam. So it goes back and forth between two of them. <laughs> oh, controversial. I kind of love Sam. I don't. I, I like Sam. I have a controversial opinion written down here that, like, I like Pierce Brosnan in this. I liked him in the first one. I like him in this. I think he's weirdly earnest, and he gets tone. Like, he knows what he's doing. Like, all of them get tone in this. Like, that's what I think really sells these movies, both of them, is that every person cast in this 
knows where they are and what they're doing. Like none of them are under any impression that this movie is anything other than Mamma Mia. Like they know what they're in and that really makes it work. Yeah. Uh, One thing we have to talk about because it plays such a major part in this uh, in both past and the present is the costuming. Yes. Um, In general, from the costumes that Donna and Rosie and Tanya wear when they're young performing, you know, these like blue and gold, like bell bottom Mm -hmm. outfits. Then uh, all of Donna's various outfits, you know, her overalls and stuff like that, the the peasant blouse and all of that stuff. Peasant blouses are so good. A lot of what she wears, I wrote down, like, this would be so yeah. fashionable and chic, like, today. But it also does feel period, like, appropriate. Like, a lot of this has just come back. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that. I mean, like, all of the visuals were really great. Um, the first time I watched this, I thought, this is going to sound weird, but the first time I watched this, I felt like there were too many songs I in it. I see that is a very weird thing to say. I think it's more than the first one, for uh, sure. Yeah, it felt like it couldn't go more than a couple of seconds before there was, like, a scene transition that involved the song. But then when I watched it the second time, I realized that, like, it wasn't as immediate, but... And it it did flow okay, but the first time I watched it, it was, like, it feels like we're going from, like, song to song to song, like, a little bit too fast without enough, like, things happening in between. But that's not actually the reality. It was just sort of my initial perception of it. Before we talk about anything else, I just saw one of my notes that I have to mention. Tom and Rita Hanks were executive producers on this movie, and that's iconic, and I love it. Love Tom Hanks doing the Lord's work. Thank you, Tom Hanks. You know what, though? I, um, there's a movie I'm probably going to get you to watch it because I love it a lot. The movie That Thing You Do is also, it's not musical, but like it's musical adjacent. It's about a fictional band in like the 1960s. You've told me about he, this, yeah. It's yeah. very good. The music is really good, but he's in it. And I think he is either EP or he, he might have directed it. I'm not sure. I have to look at the credits. So for him to be involved in like a movie like this, I feel is probably fairly appropriate. Um, just touching on the music. Uh, what were your, what was your favorite song or what were some of your favorite songs from this? I'm curious. Uh, obviously like the performance of Mamiya around the midpoint. It's really when, good. You know, uh, Donna has just broken up with Bill. Sam. Or not Bill, with Sam. That was really good. The beginning of her rendition of Mamma Mia, where she's just so, like, heartbroken, and then, like, how it builds into the full song is very good. And this is going to get into nitpicks a little bit. I really did like the performance of Knowing Me and Knowing You. Mm-hmm. But I didn't love that song choice for that scene, because... Knowing Me and Knowing You is a song about the end of a relationship that has been ongoing for a long time. Yeah. And the relationship between Donna and um, Sam at that point has probably only been like a week or a couple of weeks or whatever when she finds out that he's got a fiance. So Brandon in the movie was really good, but I felt like it wasn't necessarily tonally appropriate in their circumstances and i think that's maybe one thing that this movie runs into is like there are songs where it's just like yeah i guess this song kind of makes sense on the face of it but like when you really kind of like look at it it's like there probably could have been a better song for this i feel the same way about fernando oh we'll talk about fernando i don't know where to put fernando on this list but we'll talk about it i I have some similar thoughts i have some nitpicky 
things about song choice that we'll get into for that too. Uh, I also liked the song that she sings at her graduation. I don't know I what the name of the song is. I was just going to say, my favorite song is When I Kiss the Teacher, uh, which is maybe ironic after how much I just shat on those last <laughs> 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 Uh It's not just like, it's more so the, the song than the lyrics, but like that first performance that she gives right out the gate there is so good. Her and her friends at their graduation, they just like bust out into their disco outfits and give this crazy good performance. She makes out with her uh, teacher. I guess they're in college though, right? So that's better. But in the movie, it's framed as like a cute tongue-in-cheek thing and not like she's having a sexual relationship with her college professor. I don't think that's what the movie is suggesting, at least. I don't think so. I think it's just because they're graduating yeah. and it's and related to because Donna is a bisexual icon. I will forever stand by this reading of the movie that Donna is a bisexual icon. She also kisses Tanya later, which is also played as a joke, but also maybe not. Maybe Donna's a bisexual icon. Anyways, I love that song. Reading of anything, so. <laughs> I love that song. My other favorite song is probably unsurprisingly Waterloo. Oh, it was so fun in this movie. Like the visuals of it with everyone else in this bar. Um, this is with Harry and Donna. And Harry is attempting to get Donna to like stay the night with him. And he sings Waterloo, which doesn't really make sense. But it's fine because a lot of these songs don't need to make sense. They're just great songs. And they're all singing in this restaurant and all the other patrons are singing along with them. Um, there's this fabulous woman in a wheelchair who's doing all these spins. Like the whole like eclectic cast of people around and like using all the props in the, the restaurant for the song. I really loved it. And I wrote down here like Harry singing Waterloo to her is super gay. He's just like super gay and I'm into it. It was great. So fun. I didn't love the rendition of Waterloo, partly because I think of the actor who was singing it. And it's one of my other nitpick songs for appropriateness because it's a song about pursuing someone for a long time and he'd like literally just met her, so it felt kind of weird. But I mean, I guess there are only so many songs. That's most of Ada's songs, is because yeah. a lot of it, like. It's, it's very in line with the first Mamiya. Like, half the song choices aren't really there to make sense, I guess. It's just like, we're going to say a line that vaguely segues into this really fun ABBA song, and then we're going to give you kick-ass visuals, and it's going to be great. The song yeah. lyrics maybe don't match up great, but it's ABBA, and we're having fun. Yeah, I mean, that's why I said that all of these songs are like nitpick songs for me. Yeah. Like the one definitely didn't make sense there. Like it doesn't, it's not a deal breaker for me that yeah. they don't fit exactly because you're kind of doing the best that you can it's with the narrative. It's very much a jukebox and, musical and it's like the jukebox musical. And a lot of them are very much like this where it's like, we have a lot of really good songs. Now let's like ham fist a plot into it and we'll just like have fun. <laughs> the other song that I like is at the end when um, Sophie sings with Tanya and Rosie. Uh, again, I don't oh, know what song that is. That they um, Angel Eyes. Oh, Angel Eyes. Such a good song. Yeah. I, uh, I have some problems with the framing device. Uh, we'll get into the framing device. I had some problems with the present day stuff. And I wrote down here like, this song, Angel Eyes, is enough of a reason for this entire present-day plot to be happening. It's so fun. It was just... Songs like Waterloo and Angel Eyes for me, I really like because they fully embrace the camp and farce of it all. Uh, and what musicals really do well is that it just completely drops any sense of reality behind. Like, everyone around them is engaging with this song. Just the way it all plays out is so musical and 
great. And Tanya and Rosie just, oh, they're so good. They're good in the first one, but I really like them in this one. Uh, them bickering over like the hot um, Fernando, whatever his job was, was great. The manager of the hotel. Yeah. I also liked the um, the closing song with like, you get the past to the present actors and like everything all together. Mm-hmm. That was also really good. Over the credits. The whole number. Just like. Yeah. Yeah, credits. The whole number. Um, just like in terms of the choreography and the way that it was put together, it's just a lot of fun to watch. Um, something else that I liked was the customs guy at the dock in the past and the present, like this yeah. intense scrutiny of passport, like, oh, your hair is longer. Like, yes, that's how time works. People change their appearance. And I like the weird scene um, towards the end when like Harry arrives and like Bill is like being given a hard time over his passport and there's like this strange flirtatious scene that happens like between uh, I don't know you should there is Hold a post credit scene with him I do not know if you watched the post credit scene with him but it's there and you should go check it out <laughs> next time you're watching this and there is more flirting with him and it's great I'm pretty sure that I watched all the way to the end both times and I don't remember seeing anything, but that might have been because of how I was watching it versus like on DVD or something. Maybe. I'm not sure. It's probably also on YouTube. It's really funny. He's a great character. I love him. Um, But yeah, I liked all of the the past stuff. I thought it was very interesting seeing like the different ways that Donna was supposed to have met these three guys and like little flings with them. And it was a little bit weird that like every time she met them, she was like, Oh, also like I've never done this before. Well, like have, but like, it's not a thing that I do all of the time. It's like, I realize it's because of the time that it was supposed to happen. Whereas, you know, sort of being that kind of promiscuous person is definitely frowned upon, but it was just, yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, as far as songs, the other thing I'd written down here was, uh, <laughs> funny like every time i wrote down notes about a song it's like this is my favorite song next one's like no this is my favorite song but on dante on dante that uh donna sings when she first gets to that bar with uh where she plays with her her friends later on really really good that was probably my favorite one with her and her voice like it really showed off her voice so well it's just like she's such good range and tone and she's was such a good casting choice. Like I love the first one and I love Meryl Streep, but like she committed to every song for sure. Meryl did, but the songs weren't so much about like, Oh, this is just like this really great singer. We cast. It's like, we just cast Meryl Streep in this. Lily James really is like the whole package. She nails every one of these songs. Mm -hmm. Hey, well, let's talk about the framing device since that's something that you have issue with. Yeah. For me, um, like as much as I love this movie, I don't know if you felt similar or, or not but whenever we jump back to the present i couldn't help but feel a little bit like okay but i kind of want to just keep going with donna like that's really what's hooked me in what i'm most interested about and i could kind of do without some of sophie maybe not that i disliked most of like the sophie stuff it's just I was much more invested in Donna's story. I would agree with that. As well, as good as editing was between past and present, as I said, definitely the past storyline was much more engaging. I think we probably could have benefited from just like opening scene where Sophie is like preparing for the grand opening and she has her little thing with Sky. And then we kind of like get to the end when after the past has sort of happened and then we find out that she's had all of these difficulties or whatever. And then the grand opening 
happens and it's, you know, it sort of bookends the story as opposed to breaking yeah. it up the way it does. I had similar thoughts. Like I thought a book ending could have been good. The other thing I kind of wrote down relates, this kind of goes on a little bit of a tangent here, but for me, I didn't, why it didn't work for me was partially because I'd never really bought into uh, Sky and Sophie as a couple. In the first movie, they're not the focus of it at all. It's all about Sophie and Donna and her fathers. Those are the relationships that matter. We get one musical number with Sky that's kind of fun. And then he's just off at a bachelorette party, basically, and like is barely there. And that's clearly given no time or weight in the first movie. And in this movie, without much else, we're kind of just thrown into, oh, Sky and Sophie are having problems. And while I like them together, I never really cared enough for that to like make me care too much. And I thought one angle we could have taken, because... Dominic Cooper's sky is barely in the movie anyways. And I thought the whole Sophie being pregnant thing could have been more important to the movie as well. And not just a third act reveal. If Sophie was pregnant, if she was pregnant at the beginning of the movie versus at the end, I feel like if Sophie was pregnant the whole movie and the framing device, yeah. If the movie had started where she was visibly pregnant and he was considering a job staying in New York and she was going to be managing the hotel, then it creates a much bigger point of tension. Yeah. Um, I, my other idea was that maybe Sky had just left between the movies and she was, like her mom, going to be having to raise her daughter on her own, just like her mom did. But now she doesn't have her mom to help her through it. And so the framing device could be uh, her aunties, Tanya and Rosie, are back with uh, her three dads. And together they're all trying to kind of console Sophie and like recalling Donna's life and trying to like do that as a framing device like that could have been really good i think one of the other things too is like amanda seyfried and dominic cooper are both very good actors yeah but i feel like have any chemistry with each other in this and i don't know if that's because they hardly have any time on screen together yeah but yeah i just i agree i don't really buy into their relationship from the first one or really so much in this one either i was never angry that they were on screen i was just always a little bit well, we could be having more Donna. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't ever angry about it, but you sort of feel indifferent about it. And then even at the end of the movie, when Sophie says, well, at least this time we know who the father is. You know, if it was a situation where their relationship had broken down between movies, like she could still say that and it would be true, but she would just mm-hmm. be sort of uh, repeating her mother's experience. I just, it, I thought that would have been such a neat parallel, like exploring this idea that she was so angry at her mom in the first movie for doing this. And now she's really got to like step into her mom's shoes and understand where her mom was coming from. Hmm. And uh, I definitely was, I was sad because like the Donna and Sophie relationship was so good in the first movie. And I was just missing some of that for sure. I think that's part of the reason why when Meryl Streep comes back at the very end for like the christening, I just like wept like a baby baby like oh i cried so much in the movie theater and i cried this time too just because like well especially in the movie theater i didn't think she was going to be there i don't know if i told you meryl was going to be in this or if you knew but i didn't know that she was going to show up and so when i was in the theater and she shows up all of a sudden and her presence has been so sorely missed this whole movie and the weight of donna's passing has been over the whole movie and we see meryl they're singing to uh, or Donna singing there to her pregnant daughter. And it's like, Oh, it's just like such a blubbery baby. Like this movie has really gets you in the feels for me. Yeah. I don't think you had told me that she was going to be in the movie. And I don't know if I knew that she was, I think I was 
surprised when I saw her, but I don't remember exactly. It's also a good song. Yeah, it was a good song. I guess not a nitpick, but I also wrote down that if Sam, Harry, and Bill were all gay and in a throuple, this movie would be better. <laughs> and Harry and Bill are like 50% of the way there, so... <laughs> Them doing the Titanic pose together on the boat was so good. And you know it's that was not scripted. It was just the two of them. Like, would this be fun? Yeah. I feel like that was a lot of this movie. Just like, wouldn't this just be fun? Especially those three, because they're in so little of it. I feel like there's just like, yeah, we're going to come on set for a week or a few days, film these few scenes, and just have a ton of fun. Like, remember when we did this a decade ago? And we don't even have to be in most of this one. It'll be great. I know the dynamic between Bill, Harry, and Sam is very good. It is. I I could have used more of them, to be honest. The fact that it's only Sam as her dad for a while, and Bill and Harry only show up at the end, towards the end at least, was a little sad. Although it's kind of worth it just to get the um, Bill being awarded. What was that award? I wrote it down. Like, world's greatest Swede, or whatever it is. That's how Sophie describes it. I think it is like a specific award for... Um, it seemed like he was just being awarded for being the world's greatest Swede, and that was an actual reward. I was actually going to look up what the award was, but I forgot to. I think it's probably similar to getting, like, the Governor General's Medal or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. It's like a similar thing to that. Mm-hmm. Like the Swedish variation, I guess. A um, couple other nitpicky things. I, I, like, I had quite a few nitpicks about this movie, even though I absolutely love it. I thought with Donna's subplot with Sam, Sam clearly being the one of the three she's most invested in, I felt like Donna was pulling a lot of that emotional weight through that whole subplot. Uh, She really had to take me there, but I wrote, damn it, she does. (laughs) I just didn't get as much from him. I thought he was the weakest of the um, actors playing the younger versions. I thought the guy they had playing Bill and Harry were both great, and I wrote down how much I absolutely loved young Tanya and Rosie. They were both really good. Mm. And Sam wasn't bad, young Sam, but and I guess like he did a decent job of like kind of being a young Pierce Brosnan, but else I don't know. He was the weaker of the three for me. I would agree. Specifically thinking of the scene where um, Tanya and Rosie are going to visit Donna and they're outside the shop. Yeah. Hats or whatever. And mm-hmm. Sam comes back and he goes to go talk to like the hotel owner or whatever. And she says that she's left and he like doesn't really do anything and just kind of leaves. It's like a very unremarkable scene. I wrote down, uh, God, Sam, it's not hard to just tell her the truth, especially if your plan was to go break up with your fiance and come back anyways. I hate that trope. And I wrote kind of like the end of Stardust, where he leaves to go tell Victoria that he doesn't want to marry her anymore. It doesn't even really bother to wake up. I don't remember the character's name. Or, like, leave her a proper note or anything. He just, like, kind of leaves some vague instructions with someone and leaves and, like, the whole misunderstanding almost ruins anything. Like, take the extra effort. <laughs> like, Sam could have easily fixed that. Yeah. Could have saved yourself decades, Sam. I mean, I think part of the problem, regardless of the fact that his intention was to go and break up with her, is the fact that he engaged in this whole relationship with Donna and yeah. he had a fiancé the whole time. It's just the the fact that the first movie, Donna is so mad in, in, in the first Mamma Mia that Sam's there and... It's not until Sam says, I went to break up with her. I came right back for you. And then Donna's like, oh, that would have changed everything is kind of the sense you get from that. I do have to say there was quite a few changes from the first movie to this movie that like, I don't know, it was like a Mamma Mia, like lore snob. I was like, that's not correct. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was very weird to me that they have an entire song, the very first song, um, Honey, Honey from Mamma Mia, where 
Sophie is describing her mom's journal and her journal that she keeps, the time stamps and everything Donna says in that journal in the first movie does not even close to add up to the events of this movie. It really doesn't. Like her whole thing with Harry, she like in this movie uh, has kind of like a weird one night stand with him out of pity and then leaves. But in that movie, we're led to believe she like really liked Harry and was in love with him. And they were like together for a few weeks or at least. And there was just like little inconsistencies like that, that I was easily able to like get past because I'm like, "Eh, whatever. But it's just like, you set that up in the first movie. You could have just followed that timeline. Didn't seem too hard. I did like the scene a lot at the hotel when she's looking for a key and he mistakes her as somebody who works there. And she just like lets him stumble through very terrible French without Correcting him. And at this point in the timeline, Harry is supposed to be like a total punk. Like we see pictures of it in the first movie. He's supposed to be a punk. And the whole joke is that he becomes the stuff, like the stiff, stuck up, like banker. Yeah. But it, he acts like he's still that in this movie and not, he's like not at all punk. I like, there's like some jokes like, oh, he's trying to be punk. Like he's got quote unquote long hair and that, but he doesn't have like the piercings and like the punk clothes and everything that he has in the flashback pictures in the first movie. Yeah. Again, just kind of weird. I think this is supposed to be like a transitional part for him. Cause when he is uh, trying to catch the ferry to the Island um, and his passport is being examined, he says, Oh, I had to cut my hair for work. So I think there's like, transition that's i i mean that doesn't make the timeline issue any less problematic but i think it's like he's already started to work there so like his style is beginning to shift uh should we talk about share i don't know where to put share on our list of good bad nitpick um just tack her on at the end the way they did in the movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) really that movie that share was gonna be in it and then she's like five seconds at the end of it i I honestly didn't care at all. Like, it was not part of the movie. It was something completely different. It was just, like, Cher phoned up the director and's like, you're making another Mamma Mia. I want to be in it. And he's just like, uh, okay, this other character's name is Fernando. You come and sing Fernando. It's like, okay, cool. I'm into it. You're definitely not Meryl Streep's mom. That doesn't make sense. But that's fine. <laughs> you could show up at the very end and sing a song and then sing on the credits and make an entire ABBA album after, and then we'll go see your concert because of it. Like, that works. <laughs> and that's not why we went, but it was certainly part well, of we it. Well, if Cher hadn't made that album, she would have been would not have been touring for it, maybe, and then we wouldn't have gone. That's kind of what I was getting at. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the fact that Fernando, who's played by Andy Garcia, and, like, literally the names that they are able to get into this movie is mind-boggling. Like, Andy is Garcia it? and Cher and Meryl Streep and, like, Colin Firth. Like, the first these- movie made a bajillion dollars I and know. every wine mom in the entire world is obsessed with it. It's like, who wouldn't want to be in this? Maybe it's that Tom Hanks draw. Uh, you know, it's like this, all of these relatively serious actors, these very big name people. Yeah. And this very silly Abba themed jukebox musical. It's just like, how? I mean, I guess sometimes you just need like something fun and silly to fill out your filmography time to time. But so we've got Andy Garcia who plays Fernando, the hotel manager. And it's another situation where, like, there was a tryst somewhere in the world at one point in time. And then, like, the other person left and they never saw each other again. And then there's, like, this serendipitous moment where they're at the same place at the same time because stars align or whatever the fuck. She starts singing 
Fernando. And I'm like, look, this is a song that is very clearly about war and not like <laughs> some guy. Like, it's so weird. It's, it, it's a good ABBA song, so it doesn't matter. It is it's one of my like, favorite ABBA songs. But take like, the, the good ABBA songs the and shoehorn them into that jukebox musical. You just shove them in, even if they don't fit. I don't know, maybe the third movie will be about Ruby Sheridan and Fernando <laughs> and their thing in Mexico. Who I don't know. Who the fuck knows? But overall, with the share thing, it's just so hard to be mad at it when it's so just fun. Like, I think in the theater, I, at that point, I just, like, lost my mind. I'm like, this makes no goddamn sense. This is so out of the blue, last minute, clear as day, cut and pasted in here. And I do not care because Cher singing Fernando is so great. She's so much energy. Like, she just kills it. And she delivers all the stupid lines they give her with so much sass. And it's just fun. Like, when she's like, I guess I'm going to have to get used to be called great-grandmother now or whatever. And it's just like, this is stupid, but I love it. It's grandmother, and then somebody says great-grandmother. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I love that when that happens, Sophie is like, who said anything? I only told this person, this person, this person, oh my this God. person. Yes. And then Sam was like, I only told Harry, who's like, yeah, I told like fucking everybody. <laughs> I <laughs> told <laughs> many, many people. <laughs> uh, there's some great lines in this. Uh, is it Tanya's line when she meets Fernanda? Like, be still my beating vagina. <laughs> it's just, I die. <laughs> So good. Um, one thing I wrote down is that if they were going to do the whole share thing, I could have used more subplot with Donna and her mother in the past. I think it's probably because they didn't want to either spoil the share reveal or like show share in the past and like de- have to de age her or something because of the weird time differences. Although I wrote down it's share. She could look the same since the flashbacks in the movie anyways, and no one would question it. And that maybe my theory on, like, this by Donna subplot that was cut out of it was, like, maybe part of that was, like, friction between her and her mom. And that's why it feels like we're missing some of that initial motivation for her at the beginning of the movie is because they cut all the stuff with her and her mom or something. I don't know. There's, like, a lot of references to Donna's mom in both movies. And I thought this would have been a good opportunity to, like, show a bit more of that at the beginning of Donna and her mom and, like, why she's so eager to get out rather than just, like, reference it a few times. Mm-hmm. Any other final thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, I mean, there are all kinds of, like, very small things that I liked that we could talk about, but you know, we don't need to identify every single part of the movie. So what would you give this movie on our scale? Perfect as is, could use ketchup or douse it. I mean, it's definitely perfect as is. Uh, it's a very solid movie, as we said. I had a lot of fun watching it. Um, other than, you know, maybe a minor tweak to the framing device like we talked about. Uh, otherwise, I have no qualms with it. I would probably watch it again. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. I'm glad to hear that. A lot of the time when I show people Mamma Mia, I get that very like, oh, you're just like, you just don't get, you're just like, you're just not into this kind of musical very much, are you? There's a few people like clearly very bored during watching Mamma Mia with me, but I really like this one. I, I would definitely do Perfect As Is. It's, uh, I, I was worried when I saw it in theaters that I wouldn't like it as much as the first or that it would somehow let me down because how much I love the first one, but it has continually impressed me every time I've watched it. That's it for us this episode. Join us again next time when we catch up on more movies with each other.
updates on future episodes and other news, make sure to follow us on social media at Movie Catch Up Pod.